Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your great mercy uh, that we would see Jesus uh, in his word, that we would come to know him, come to know his greatness and his truthfulness and come to trust him for life. And we pray that you would help me to teach your word now truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, from the back blocks to the capital, from a village family wedding to the Jerusalem temple, from Revelation to a few, his disciples and a few servants, to capturing the national spotlight. The story of Jesus that John is telling takes a major gear change at chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Location, audience, style, all changed. From a self-effacing work of power in turning water into wine, which he'd made known only to a few of his followers and servants, to acting boldly, openly and confrontingly on the centre stage of Jewish national life driving traders from the Jerusalem temple. And this will not be the last of unanticipated changes of Jesus' ministry taking unexpected directions, from dealing with Jews to embracing despised Samaritans, from gathering followers to driving them away by his uncompromising teaching, from avoiding publicity to provoking confrontation to promising life and giving himself up to death. What prompts these changes? What directs Jesus in his ministry? Is there a plan or is it just random? Constantly reacting to circumstances as the movement he started moves beyond his control. Does Jesus have some kind of agenda, say a political agenda? Does he act as he does to gain popular support for his position? driven by the need to enlist followers who will promote his teaching and ideas and influence. And what motivates Jesus in these changes? Is it vanity, just wanting the endorsement of others? Or is it a simple desire for power and influence, perhaps a dissatisfaction with the way things are and a conviction that he can run things better? What directs Jesus in his ministry? What is his motive? What is his goal? Jesus reveals both his motive and his goal in John chapter 2. These verses, which we've heard read, record the first of three Passover visits to Jerusalem mentioned in John's Gospel. And on this first visit, we witness the first of the two attempts by Jesus to restore the integrity of the worship of God in the Jerusalem temple. This one, here at the beginning of his ministry, and the other recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke at the end of his ministry in the context of Jesus pronouncing judgment on a corrupt and apostate Jerusalem. And in this first visit, in his actions and in his answer to, his, to, the, to being questioned, we see what drives Jesus and we see what Jesus is driving towards. That is, we see his motive and his goal. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem 
in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now the Jerusalem temple was not your local church and the Passover was not your regular Sunday or even your regular Sabbath. The Passover was the start of the festival of unleavened bread. One of the three occasions in the year when every Jewish male was meant to come up to the temple. Three times a year, all were meant to go up and worship God there. So what Jesus does here would gain the widest publicity as people brought the report of his actions back to their communities, the villages in Judah and Galilee and further afield. So what's happening in the temple is no sideshow. And to get a feel for the significance of what Jesus does and says here, we need to think about the temple and its place in the life of Jewish people because we're not familiar with temples, so we need to know how they thought about the temple. Well, this was what's called the second temple, the temple that had been rebuilt after its destruction by the Babylonians and then rebuilt again by Herod the Great who expanded and beautified it. But the rebuilt temple continued to have the place in the life of the Jewish people that the first temple, the temple built by Solomon, had had. And that temple itself was the successor of the tabernacle, that tent that had travelled with the people of Israel throughout their wilderness wanderings in the Exodus. Now the tabernacle and the temple had been given by the Lord, the Lord who had rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and it had been given to them as the sign of his, the Lord's presence amongst his people. His presence as their covenant Lord and King. Have them make a sanctuary for me, God had said to Moses, and I will dwell among them. And of course, it was the sign of his rule and relationship with them. Because at the centre of both tabernacle and temple, was the Holy of Holies and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark and in the Ark were the two tables of the law. This was a sign that he was their saving God living amongst them and their king living amongst them. God himself had actually set apart the tabernacle and temple for himself when he had come down in the cloud of glory on each when their construction had been finished at the commitment commencement of the worship in each. And so in Exodus 40, say we'd read after the tabernacle's finished being made, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And at the conclusion of the building of the temple by Solomon, again we read 1 Kings 8, the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple his temple, which he had made his own. And at the place where God had made his name dwell, well, the, this place, the temple, was seen as the place of access to God, where God would hear your prayer. As Solomon prayed at the consecration of the temple, may your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, 
And when you hear, forgive. The temple was the place of access to God where you could find mercy. And the temple was the place of atonement where God dealt with the sins of his people. In fact, it was the only place, for only here was God's altar located, the altar where the daily sacrifices were made. Oh yes, the altar where the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement was made. And the temple was also a place of revelation. God had said to Moses, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now as the place of access, atonement, revelation, the place that all Israel had to go three times a year, the temple became central to the life of God's people. Its place and role became celebrated in their songs. It was a place to be longed for and delighted in because it was the house of their God, their Saviour. Just one example, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. So this was the temple of the Jews, the place of their God's presence, the sign of his dwelling amongst them, a place of access to God, of atonement, of revelation, the focus and heart of God's people's relationship with their God. And Jesus is now present in the temple at the Passover, the great Festival, remembering God's deliverance, present in the temple, surrounded by the noise and smell of livestock. See, because all Israel had to gather and because some had to travel far and because they were not to appear empty-handed but were to appear with gifts and sacrifices, the temple authorities provided the means of worship for them. All that was necessary, conveniently on sale in the temple courts, probably the outermost court of the Gentiles. It's a bit like the souvenir shop next to the tourist attraction. You know, it's so convenient, sheep, oxen, pigeons. And because people could only use a certain kind of money, the Tyrian shekel, to pay the temple tax and not the money that they brought from their own homes and villages, well, the authorities had also conveniently provided money changes for them in the temple. Now, some might see that as a thoughtful provision, convenient, making worship easy. Oh, and a useful way of raising money for the upkeep of the temple. Oh yes, and the upkeep of the priests who controlled what went on in the temple precincts and who took their cut. But Jesus saw it differently. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house 
or consume me. Now, Jesus' action was not violent, but disruptive. Disruptive to commerce, not to public order, for it draws no intervention from the authorities, just questions. And it really wasn't violent to people. It's the sheep and the cattle he drives out with the whip. And in the absence of a good dog, they would have been pretty hard to move without a whip. And he makes sure the work of the money changers is interrupted and they're encouraged to relocate by overturning their tables. Oh, and yes, he encourages the dove sellers whose stock is not released to relocate. Get these out of here, he says. And why? Why interrupt what many might see as a useful and a profitable service? Stop turning my father's house into a market, he says. Jesus' objection here isn't to any corrupt dealings or dishonesty in trade. It is to the trade itself taking place within the temple, his father's house. His concern is for the honour of his father. You see, what was the temple for? Who should decide what was to take place in the temple? Who should rule in the house of God? That's right. The temple was the house of God, remember? What the psalmist called God's dwelling place. It was a gift by him to his people, the place where they could draw near to him, seek his help, sing his praise, meditate on his holiness. Those worshipping him should not be competing with the noise of herds and flocks of business and bartering. And of course the house of God, God's word should rule here and his purpose prevail. And the Lord had made no provision for trade, only worship. And the purposes for which he had given the temple should not be subordinated to human purposes, displaced for profit or convenience. You see, Jesus could not stand his father being relegated as the focus of temple activity, his worship being displaced or his rule being set aside for profit or convenience. Those making provision for trade in the temple courts were in effect breaking the second and third commandments in the place that was most meant to signify God's covenant relationship with his people, where all things should be in conformity to his word. The commandments that were in the ark that was in the Holy of Holies in the first temple. You see, they are breaking the commandments. The authorities were allowing the worship of money to compete with and displace the worship of God. And they were taking God's name in vain. You see, they were treating the living God as if he were insubstantial, someone whose commands they could set aside when it suited their interests in the place where he had made his name to dwell. Jesus' heart was jealous for the honour of God's house. He wanted it treated as it should be, the place where God had made his name to dwell, the place God had associated forever with his revelation of himself to his people as their living, saving God. To be jealous for, zealous for God's house was to be jealous of and zealous for God's honour, for he had identified himself and his presence his presence with his people, with the temple. To dishonour the place of his presence was to dishonour the Lord. And his disciples recognised this zeal in Jesus 
and in so doing recognised him as the king, the one who fulfilled what was spoken of God's Christ in Psalm 69. His disciples remembered, verse 17, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for God's house was to be the mark of God's true king. And this zeal was a driving passion for the honour, the reputation of the Lord, Israel's God, who had made this temple the sign of his dwelling with his people. And this zeal was a passion for the integrity of the Lord's relationship with his saved people, expressed in right worship, the worship God had commanded in his temple. And this zeal, we're told, was a consuming passion, a driving passion that would not be satisfied until its goal, the restoration of God's honour and the restoration of the integrity of his relationship with his people was realised. And this is what motivated Jesus in his very public action. It wasn't a political agenda. It wasn't a desire to harness popular support. It was his passion for the honour of his heavenly Father, passion that the Lord be rightly worshipped as the only living God, a passion that would burn until his goal was achieved, that God was rightly worshipped by his people, a passion that would suffer rather than see God dishonoured or his glory shared. It's this zeal that we see revealed also in Jesus' answer to the question asked of him by the Jews. And the Jews is often a term in John for the Jewish authorities. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. When the authorities ask for a sign, they're actually demanding that Jesus prove himself to them meet the criteria, their criteria, before he claims to act for God. <coughs> this call for a sign is the demand of unbelief that again seeks to subordinate God to themselves and their judgment. And Jesus responds to this demand of unbelief with the only kind of sign he ever gives to those demanding one. Destroy this temple, he says, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, as the disciples recognised after Jesus' resurrection, he is speaking of the death and rising of his body. So Jesus is pointing his critics to who he is and what he came to do, revealed fully and finally in his death and resurrection which will be a revelation fully and finally of his authority, not just over the temple, but over all things. And at that time, it will be seen that Jesus is actually the new temple, the promised temple of the new age. That is, it will be seen that Jesus is the one in whom God dwells with his people. 
Jesus is the place of the revelation of God, where we can know God. And yes, Jesus is the place of atonement, where our sins are dealt with. Jesus, the place where God's people will gather and in whom they can now offer true worship. Jesus, the one in whom individuals can now draw near to God, be heard by God, find grace and mercy and help from God. It will be seen that he is the temple. Well, of course, his questioners greet his response with incredulity. Forty-six years it's taken us to get this far. Three days? They could not contemplate or even imagine such a work because they'd already made God small enough to accommodate their plans. And so he couldn't do anything they couldn't imagine him doing. Yet at that time, at that time, when his body is killed and then raised, Jesus would be revealed in that rising as one greater than they could imagine, one who has all authority to regulate what goes on in the temple. Oh, yes, and this sign revealing Jesus will condemn their unbelief. The disciples didn't understand Jesus' answer at the time, but Jesus did. And so in these words, he's actually revealing here his goal, the goal of his ministry. It's to die and rise again and bring God's people to life in God's presence, life in the house of God, at peace with the Holy God. It's to actually restore integrity to the relationship between God and his people, where they worship him in truth. Oh, and it is to vindicate the honour of the living God as the only saving God. Jesus knew what he had come to do. So what do we see here in the temple of Jesus' motivation? Well, it's the honour, the glory of his Father, that he be properly honoured amongst his people, that his revelation of himself and his rule and word not be treated as empty but true, and that his worship not be shared but be wholehearted. And we see here Jesus' goal to be consumed in vindicating the honour of his Father, to do his will in bringing glory to the Father by dying and rising again, dying for sinners, dying to make it possible for the living God to dwell amongst his people in reality and not just under a sign. That's right, to dwell with us now in the gift of the Spirit and forever in the new heaven and earth where there'll be no temple because, as John writes, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus shows us what drives him and what he's driving towards. So how should we respond to this Jesus who makes his motive and goal known? This Jesus who's not concerned what people think of him, who's not dependent on people's approval, who has one passion, his Father's glory, and whose work, whose goal, so far exceeds human imagination or any human construction. How should we respond to this Jesus who is uncompromising in teaching the truth of God, unrelenting in pursuing his Father's will, who won't accommodate his plans and actions to our convenience or good sense, who will never accept both and? 
as a God and man in our worship of his Father. Well, we actually see three responses to Jesus in this passage. Firstly, there are those who have no time for Jesus, who see Jesus' presence as a disruption and challenge his right to speak and act for God. People like the temple authorities who want to use their religion, their talk of God, to serve themselves and advance their own cause, increase their own wealth, whose religion is human, man-centred, so that their convenience, their enrichment, their needs are the test of what should be done or not done, and their understanding the judge of right and wrong. People who want a both-and relationship with God, God and money, or God and my pleasure, or God and my secret sin. A both-and relationship, which means that they are always the ones in charge. They get to choose what they give to this God, what they give to that God. They are always at the centre. Now, where that commitment to be at the centre exists, there will never be time for Jesus. For his zeal for God exposes our love of self. His actions and teaching confront our sin, whether it's love of money or hypocrisy or pride or sexual immorality. His zeal for God confronts our sin. His zeal that says God should be given all our trust, all our thanks, all our praise, all our love, always. His zeal that says God's word alone should govern our relationship with him. That zeal will always frustrate and irritate those who want to keep themselves at the centre. And they, like those temple authorities, will soon turn their questioning into hatred and a murderous determination to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus' glory does condemn them and will condemn them. So don't be like them. Don't keep yourself at the centre. Jesus has risen. He has demonstrated his authority. He has the right to speak and act for God. He has the right to drive out of your relationship with him what should never be there. Your unforgiveness, your love of money, your sexual immorality, your measuring your obedience by your convenience. He has the right to drive those things out from your relationship with God. Don't be like those authorities. Repent of putting yourself at the centre and welcome his coming and his zeal. But there is a second group, the believers who can't be trusted. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is a puzzling little paragraph, isn't it? Because we read in John 1 that those who believed in Jesus' name were those who were given the right to become children of God. But here we have believers in Jesus' name. But Jesus, like God, Jeremiah 17, knows their hearts and will not entrust himself to them. What's happening? Well, they believe the signs, but 
But the only Jesus they want is the one who does signs for them. The Jesus who meets their expectation of what the Christ should be like and do for his people. This becomes clearer as the Gospel goes on and especially in John 6. In John 6 we see that there the crowd, having been miraculously fed, want to make Jesus their king. They are all for Jesus as long as he is their man for their plans. But when Jesus goes on in John 6 and starts talking of his death and the need to depend on his death for life, this is not a Jesus they want to follow. This is a hard teaching. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Their kind of believing is just another human-centred, man-centred religion where they have put themselves again, their understanding, their expectations, their needs at the centre. Oh, they admire Jesus, they respect Jesus, but the only Jesus they want is the one they can enlist to their agenda and serve their interests, whether that's, say, the agenda of a Christian nationalism or the pursuit of health and wealth in this life. Oh, when Jesus conforms to that, when he can serve their agenda, they're all for him. And when he does not, when he speaks of, well, their need of him and his death and rising, they will abandon him. And Jesus knows that and knows that his heart is to please the Father. You see, Jesus isn't interested in meeting the demands and expectations of his followers. We receive Jesus on his terms, or not at all. We receive Jesus on his terms, where he calls us to give ourselves to his agenda, and that is to seek the glory of his Father through our listening to his Son, Jesus, and doing his will. And we either give ourselves to follow, led by Jesus, or we are not his at all. But there's also a third group, the disciples. Oh, they admit they didn't understand at all when it was going on, that what Jesus said was often beyond them. They admit they're not the heroes in the story, that it's not their zeal, but Jesus' zeal that saves but they hang in better. Jesus hangs in with them. And they're distinguished by being willing to be taught by the word. They understand Jesus, verse 17, by remembering the word. Verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture, whether the specific scriptures that spoke of the resurrection like Psalm 16 or the scriptures more generally that taught of the coming of the Christ and his work like Isaiah 53. They believed the scriptures, what God had said of his son. And they believed the word that Jesus had spoken, difficult as it was. They were willing, you see, to let God teach them about himself. Let God teach them about what he would do. And they didn't limit it or edit it. They didn't demand that, well, God should only say what they wanted, give them the God they could either discount or ignore or make the servant of their own ambitions. They humbled themselves, 
to receive from God through his incarnate son, the son who would die on the cross, be consumed by his zeal for God. They humbled themselves to receive from God himself the truth about himself. And they found a God who could be known. They found the true and living God who would come and live amongst them. They found a God whom they can always approach for grace and help. They found a God who in the Son's being consumed by his zeal for the Father, saved them forever. A God better than they imagined, Father, Son and Spirit, worthy of all their trust and obedience, worthy of their single-minded worship. Well, here in the temple, Jesus is revealed. His heart, the passion that drives him, that will drive him to the cross, his goal to do the Father's will in dying and rising and so become the one in whom God can be worshipped rightly and forever, worshipped in spirit and truth. So as you meet Jesus here in the temple, how do you respond to him? Have you no time for a Jesus who won't compromise with you, who insists on being at the centre, Lord, Are you believing in him only to the extent that it serves you and your agenda? You get what you demand from him. Or have you humbled yourself to believe his word and deal with Jesus on his terms? How are you responding to Jesus? Be a disciple, someone who follows this Jesus perseveringly follows to the life Jesus gives. Believe what Jesus says about himself. Accept the truth of his words, even if you don't fully understand them at first. But be someone who is delighted that God insists on his proper place in your life, being at the centre, that God insists on being loved with all your heart and mind and soul, delighted because you trust his Son. And you know that the Lord Jesus, committed to the Father's will, zealous for the Father's honour, confronting man-centred religion, saves, saves now and forever, can bring you to live in the presence of the living, holy God, can bring you to dwell with God, at peace with him, worshipping him forever. This is the Jesus you meet in the temple. I pray you will meet him in your own heart. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again we pray, help us to know Jesus, to knowing him, to trust him, and trusting him to love and follow him. That we might be people who worship you, our creator and saviour, rightly, through the spirit and truth you give through your son Jesus. And so that we might be people who know the life you give, now and forever. And we ask this so that you would be glorified in your son amongst us. 
Amén.